Hey, it's Jordan. I'm here with Anthony Clark. Uh, you are a teacher there in Chicago. You ran for Congress as a, a Justice Democrat in 2000 and, uh, was it 16? 2018. 2018. 2018. And um, you're running again, which I like because, uh, like Bernie says, Bernie ran a couple times and he lost uh, there in Vermont. A lot of people who uh, become congressmen or senators or dog catcher lose the first time or two. But I like that you're going back at it. So I wanted to start before we get to your campaign, which is in the 7th District. I mean, there's a new Chicago mayor, but we can't forget the old Chicago mayor, Rahm Emanuel, who if we lived to me, if we lived in a sane society uh, where the attention wasn't only on Trump, uh, this guy would have to kind of walk in shame. But now, since he's left, he's getting a column uh, at the Atlantic. He's got, got now a gig on ABC News. And uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, wrote a piece the other day about uh, keeping the elites in check, which I found comical. Can you kind of tell the audience? Uh, because it's not Rahm, what Rahm Emanuel did in Chicago is going on in a lot of other places, too. Uh, can you kind of talk? about, uh, you know, what people should know about Rahm Emanuel's legacy. And, and the, 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 obviously Chicago was in a ditch before him, but how far further have, have things gone in the negative? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, first and foremost, who knew uh, covering up a murder would mean promotions, you know, would mean moving up in the world. Uh, you know, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, we're referring to Laquan McDonald, uh, 16 shots and a cover-up. Uh, you know, Rahm Emanuel played a direct role in essentially, uh, you know, protecting uh, the police department, uh, trying to uh, circumvent accountability and essentially uh, sweep the murder under the rug. Uh, so, like you stated, you know, I, I'm still trying to fully comprehend how in this society, uh, particularly, uh, you know, and I don't want to go too deep, but particularly, you know, if you're a, a white male or, you know, so on and so forth, how you can essentially fail at your job. Uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Chicago, uh, you can Google this. You know, the last few years we've led or been number two or three in the nation in regard to citizens leaving our state. Uh, and this is the state of Illinois. But particularly in Chicago, we've had the highest numbers of individuals exiting, uh, you know, the state of Illinois. Uh, the Austin community, for example, uh, used to be the largest community, which is in the 7th Congressional District uh, in Chicago. And, you know, numbers are steadily declining uh, just due to uh, lack of investment, just due to continuous high crime rates, uh, due to, you know, school closures, mental health facility closures, lack of job opportunity. We could go on and on. Uh, but essentially, Rahm Emanuel, you know, I consider him a neo-lib, uh, you know, a centrist dem. Uh, and we saw what those policies meant uh, for black and brown and poor people uh, within the city of Chicago to where TIF districts were created to invest and infuse, you know, downtown districts, downtown areas where primarily tourists and, you know, primarily upper class uh, individuals lived, uh, saw growth, you know, uh, saw prosperity. And you can essentially, you know, cross a street. You can essentially just change one area code or zip code and everything changes uh, for citizens in the city. Uh, you know, they launched a war on poverty. Uh, you know, our homeless population continues to struggle. Uh, you know, data shows based upon a lot of the activists that are in the street, we're hovering around 80,000. And I'm not making this number up. 80,000 individuals that are homeless. And that number also accounts for individuals that double up, you know, so may live with another family, so on and so forth. Uh, so as a black male, you know, in, in the city of Chicago, 
his his reign, you know, it was long overdue to be done. Uh, you know, I don't watch, you know, Game of Thrones, but I heard everybody was disappointed with the end of it. Uh, I want to ask you um, about you look at you look at Chicago and the guy you lost to in 2018, Dan, Congressman Danny Davis. Uh, it's it's real machine politics there. You have people in there since the beginning of time. Uh, it's it's kind of like a, a, a boys club. Uh, backroom deals, run City Hall, and, um, you know, I guess, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, uh, the same people come out and vote all the time, but there's a lot of discouraged uh, people in the minority community that don't come out and vote. I mean, you, you lost by a significant margin, but you still got a lot of votes uh, in 2018. You, uh, yeah. you got, let me just, you got 28,000, almost 29,000 votes there, and Danny Davis, who you're facing, again, uh, is... Was, is a longtime fixture there. So can you kind of talk about what did you, what did you accomplish, uh, do you feel, in your last election? And what do you think you've learned then that you could cross over to this go-around to take down, I mean, a really entrenched establishment congressman there? Definitely. That's a great question. And for me, uh, you know, I'm a huge boxing fan, huge Muhammad Ali fan. And the way I compare 2018 to 2020 is – uh, in 2018, you know, I was nominated to run for office by Justice Democrats and brand new Congress. Individuals from the community nominated me to run. Uh, you know, I'm a teacher, nonprofit founder and director, uh, you know, small business co-owner. You know, we do a lot of work on the ground. And based upon that work, you know, that I, you know, uh, do with the community, they nominated me. Uh, I accepted the nomination. I never saw myself becoming a politician. Uh, but why I accepted the nomination was because I felt this was a way to truly take what we were doing on the ground at a micro level, treating symptoms, expand upon it to a macro level, and actually attack root causes. Uh, but what I didn't and what I did understand and wasn't prepared for is, like you stated, the nuance involved in running for office and how the establishment, uh, you know, the DCCC and how incumbents, uh, you know, how they basically come together and engage in, in actions small and large to ensure that candidates like myself uh, have very little chance of success, particularly in a corrupt uh, city like Chicago, to where, let's be honest, the Democratic Party benefits from voter suppression. You know, I think often we, of course, point fingers at the Republican Party, you know, historically, you know, Jim Crow laws and so on and so forth, you know, what's been done in Georgia, so on and so forth. But on the ground, we have not grown, you know, as a people. We have not grown as communities. They benefit from essentially counting on the older generations who, you know, know the incumbent, you know, have comfortable name recognition. Uh, you know, the incumbent slogan when he ran last time was the name you know. Uh, they count on the older voting population primarily to vote and push them through. Meanwhile, there's zero effort uh, to engage the younger voting populations, uh, to really be boots to the ground and really understand, you know, the younger constituency and what's needed to move, you know, our cities forward. Uh, so we dealt with, uh, you know, intimidation, you know, verbally, physically. We dealt with uh, yard signs being stolen, you know, thousands of dollars in the yard signs just being ripped up from the ground from people's homes and out in the community uh, to basically stunt my ability to build my own name recognition. Uh, they challenged our signatures. Uh, they challenged our petitions. Uh, you know, that cost us $10,000 in months. And then if you look at the Democratic Party as a whole, you know, they denied us access to ban. You know, we had to go through a month, you know, over six month process to just gain access to viable voter information. So we're essentially out knocking on doors and not necessarily knowing if, you know, the information we had on our sheet was accurate. Uh, that occurred as well. 
so it just went on and on. You know, they didn't want us to have debates. You know, they pushed back. It's putting us together. Uh, so it was just a multitude and a multi-level approach to, you know, suppressing a candidate like myself. And I think we saw that, you know, with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others across the nation. Uh, you know, this is tried and true, you know, for the DCCC and the establishment party. You know, they have a blueprint uh, to just try to silence and marginalize anyone who dares, you know, challenge their power. So what, what's interesting to me uh, about Chicago and when I was there and you helped me uh, speak with a lot of the activists there, but there's so many activists, but there's also kind of, I don't want to say divisions, but kind of tribes within activism in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You got people that have been activists for a long time, 40s, 50s, and then you got new people in their 20s and you know, early 30s or whatever. So not even all the activists are on the same page. But mm-hmm. you were talking about, and I think what Ocasio-Cortez did fairly well, was she went into areas that don't typically vote. And she had, mm-hmm. uh, she had somebody who was basically asleep at the switch. He was just assuming he was going to win. Uh, do you, I remember we spoke in the past about how big that district is uh, okay. to really canvas. So how do you reach uh, younger voters and voters that just stop giving a crap? Because you got almost 29,000 votes, which is a great starting point. Uh, right. And now, uh, hopefully, you've, you've learned a few lessons to anticipate what they're going to do early uh, for kind of, I, I guess, counter attack, counter that. Uh, how do you how do you target specifically new voters? Yeah. Uh, you know, the district is huge. You know, the 7th Congressional District spans from Inglewood to downtown Chicago all the way into the western suburbs. Like, it's like Hillside. Uh, so. Again, you know, in 2018, we weren't prepared. I'll be honest with you. You know, we were new, we were fresh, we had a message, but we really didn't know, again, what went into, you know, truly running an effective campaign. Uh, so we failed to reach voters in 2018. I'll be honest and say we did zero mailers in 2018. Uh, so, you know, going through that experience, you know, learning from our failures, having data now, the 28,000 people that did believe in the movement, uh, building, you know, stronger coalitions. I'm in other communities beyond the base that I have in Oak Park. You know, we built relationships. So this is not just running. You know, it's not like I went dormant and I went, you know, went to hibernation and now, oh, it's time to run again, like many of the incumbents do. You don't see them until it's election season. We've been in the community's boots to the ground consistently prior to 2018 and after 2018. So we're going to utilize those coalitions, you know, the wonderful individuals like uh, Best of Proviso that I work with in the Maywood and, you know, Proviso Township community, uh, individuals like the Austin Family Community Center and the Austin community. Like we have healthy relationships. So it's not just myself. It's not just volunteers or those that are officially on the campaign. It's actually community members that live and work within those areas that I've been fighting, as you stated. And I think another thing that's important to uh, mention, you know, based upon what you asked, is I think one of the biggest cons that has ever been sold to oppressed classes, and when I say oppressed classes, I'm talking black, brown, women, so on, whatever you could be identified as, you know, with a social construct, whether it's race or gender, because they're social constructs, uh, to keep you oppressed. Uh, individualism oftentimes creates uh, a narrative of people are hesitant to work together, in a sense, or it's about hustling the system or hustling the issues to prop an individual up. And I think with me, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of speak of myself, uh, but I believe that individuals that I come in contact with, they recognize the genuine nature of our movement. You know, at the end of the day, this is not about me. Uh, this is about a belief that in, in order to truly empower the people, you know, we have to build intersectional coalitions. And we have to understand that throughout history, uh, within a capitalistic society, they've utilized social constructs like race, gender, age, ability, 
uh, sexual orientation to keep us divided. Because uh, to me, at the end of the day, it's truly about classes. You know, you have the, the super wealthy, you know, have the one percenters, and then you have us, you know, struggling day to day, struggling every day, and we're divided within ourselves. Uh, so we've really tried to put in an effort to, you know, preach and discuss the importance of coming together and recognizing that the by design nature is to keep us separated uh, because if we unite black, brown, straight, gay, lesbian, trans, poor, young, old, so on and so forth and truly unite, there's nothing we can't do. So I think we've really put in effort as well. Uh, you know, I think the individuals that I built relationships with, they appreciate that they believe in the movement also. Uh, so in 2020, we're really moving forward, uh, not only you know with greater capacity within the multiple communities within a district, but greater belief from individuals that may not have necessarily worked together in the past, uh, because they understand again, you know we're stronger together, and you know if we stay if we remain divided and if we continue to try to push individualism instead of collectivism, uh, we're going to fail. Do you plan on? Uh, I know you did some of this in 2018, but. Even since then, I mean, Medicare for all is polling better than ever. So is free public college, mm -hmm. fight for 15, even wealth tax, uh, all things that my good guess is someone like Congressman Danny Davis not gives either lip service to or is definitively against. Uh, do you plan on making that more of an issue? Because at the end of the day, uh, we don't know how it's going to play out uh, nationally, uh, who's going to be the candidates. But, I mean, the, the momentum is moving towards the left and you were running the election was in 2018 but your the real ground hustle was 2017 and 2018 uh do you plan on uh, going i don't want to say going after but really drawing that contrast more because obviously something like medicare for all would lift people in chicago particularly uh you know communities of color uh right. more so than in right. many other places yeah, uh, great question. You know, I think for me, what's most important about this race, it's a we, you know, situation, it's a movement, but I'm going to be myself in 2020. I think when I ran before, you know, you, you, again, you don't know, you know, you just don't know what you don't know. And you're kind of hesitant. You feel like at times, quite honestly, you have to pander or you have to tell people what they want to hear in order to gain their support. Uh, the position I'm coming from in 2020 is I'm going to be myself and I'm going to let you know what I believe in. I'm not giving lip service like the incumbent who often, you know, the narrative is, oh, well, they vote the right way. But what about fighting the right way? Uh, so what I believe in is at the forefront, as you stated, single payer, uh, Medicare for all, uh, college and trade for all. Uh, the Green New Deal is extremely important. Uh, you know, addressing housing issues with the homelessness situation and our homeless veterans. Housing should be a human right. Uh, we have to address the affordability of homes. Look at what's going on with HUD right now and Ben Carson, who is carrying packages of Oreos around, thinking it's a joke uh, that they're preying upon, uh, you know, the underprivileged. Uh, so we could go on and on. And I think, again, we have to be extremely bold. And one of my platform pieces uh, that I think also kind of ties into the importance of this race is the decriminalization of sex work. And again, the legalization of cannabis with the focus on racial justice. We were the only candidate in the 2018 race pushing for the legalization of cannabis. The incumbent was not. Uh, but now again, that fight continues and we're taking the fight to the establishment. We have to have a focus on racial justice because I think, you know, when anything becomes legal and regulated, oftentimes the individuals that are frozen out are the individuals that are always been oppressed, uh, you know, black, brown, poor, et cetera. Uh, so regulation comes with issues. So we have to be purposeful in how we legalize. And as well, looking at the decriminalization of sex work, I personally believe that you cannot be pro-labor, uh, you cannot be pro-women's rights, 
if you don't include sex work. Sex work is work. I'm encountering black women, trans women, uh, white women, young and old, uh, who truly are falling under the weight of prohibition. You know, we know prohibition, whether it's alcohol, weed, drugs, et cetera, does not work. It's not effective. So we truly have to address this issue and start treating root causes. Uh, and again, by decriminalizing sex work, I truly believe that you, you also will positively impact sex trafficking. Uh, you know, because again, being reactive and prohibitive, you push individuals further and further into the underground and that's not going to solve anything. So we're truly being bold with our policy points, our policy issues, and we're truly going to stand on our principles. And we're not going to be afraid to tell people what we believe in and how we feel. And one thing that we definitely don't believe in is centrism and just essentially providing lip service. And I want to ask you, because you have Trump, uh, he likes when he talks about this magical economy, which... I think we both know is magical for hedge fund managers and pharmaceutical executives and, you know, the wealthy. Uh, the, the number is so low in large part because a lot of people have dropped out of the workforce. But he has also been adding in there, you know, the lowest African-American unemployment and so on and so on. Well, I've been to Chicago, Flint, Detroit, many, many areas that are predominantly African-American. And I see a lot of people working three jobs. <laughs> I see a lot of people living in squalor with those three jobs. Uh, and I see a lot of people just giving up and frankly, uh, whether it's opioids uh, and other things, just kind of struggling. Um, can you kind of talk about the realities on the ground? People, you know, it's always talked about, oh, the gang violence and, you know, black on black crime and this and that. But there's a lot of people in Chicago, uh, particularly people of color, that are just basically jobless. And that's before we're facing uh, I think a more and more automation economy. So uh, can we can we kind of dispel what Trump's talking about, and you give us an insight? Definitely. I, it's, I think it's interesting to think about that connection. So so many people, rightfully so, you know, are focused on Trump. You know, there's talk of impeachment, want Trump out of office. Uh, but one thing that I tell individuals is, if we're truly going to have a revolutionary mindset and truly move forward as a people, you know, bringing power back to the people, we have to move away from constantly paying attention to and treating symptoms. Because if you're constantly looking at a symptom like Trump or a symptom like gun violence or a symptom like, you know, unemployment or, you know, sex work, so on, that's a symptom. Well, sex trafficking, that's a symptom. We're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to move forward. We need to position ourselves and pay attention to root causes. And I think what you you you, know, you brought up and you mentioned is Trump is a root cause. Uh, Trump is a symptom of the root causes of, again, a capitalistic society essentially built on white supremacy. You know, this nation was built on genocide. Uh, this nation was built upon slavery. In order to maintain a capitalistic system, you have to have a top and a bottom. You have to have an unemployed. Uh, you have to have a poor uh, in order to maintain capitalism. Again, you know, in a free market, what does a free market mean to individuals that are essentially not free? Slavery by a new name. Uh, so when you look at what's going on in Chicago, you have to account for, like you stated, I have parents, I'm a high school teacher. I have parents working three or four jobs that can never come see their child in a play, that can never come see their child in sports activity, come to a parent-teacher conferences because they're constantly working. Uh, we don't even think about Lyft and Uber, whatever you may think about them as individual companies, uh, how individuals now are trying to you know, somewhat further empower themselves with creative job opportunities. So Lyft and Uber is now a viable uh, employment uh, avenue. As you stated, the opioid epidemic, so many individuals have been unemployed for so long and no government assistance 
they're essentially falling out of the data pool. You know, how do you collect the data? How do you know who's unemployed? Well, if individuals are no longer identifying themselves or no longer applying for job opportunities, sometimes they fall out of that data pool. So the, po- the high levels of poverty that we're seeing uh, in the uh, Chicago community, the high levels of unemployment, we're at 16.4% unemployment. That's four times the national average. Four times the national average. Uh, the amount of high school closures, middle school closures that exist, uh, you know, the, the mental health facility closures. It's a real issue. And I think we have to stop looking at perfect example. You've been here. Uh, you know, you see it on the news where you have 30 or 40 students, high school students going downtown Chicago. And then everybody gets afraid and says, oh, you know, these teens, they're rowdy and so on and so forth. Again, that's a symptom. Why are they downtown? Why are they roaming Michigan Avenue, which you care so much about? Because you haven't invested in giving them other viable opportunities. You know, why is the gun violence so high? Because let's understand how lobbyists have created a world where we're valuing profit over human life. You know, gun violence should be treated as a public health issue. We really should be uh, funding the CDC and studying these issues to truly understand what leads to mass shootings, which leads to the every day-to-day shootings that many of our black and brown students are engaged in. And we won't even, I mean, we haven't even necessarily discussed on a national level uh, how 73% of the mass shootings that occur in America are predominantly by alt-right, white supremacist organizations, you know? Uh, Domestic terrorism basically are white males, (laughs) Uh, domestic terrorists. We're not even looking at that. So again, in Chicago, we're a hardworking city. You know, Chicago and Chicagoland area, we have so many individuals that truly care, that are boots to the ground and are fighting, and they just need support. And we're not necessarily getting that. So what do you expect when throughout history, you know, if you talk about Tulsa, Oklahoma or Rosewood, where when, you know, oppressed classes of people, if you want to talk about black folk, built up communities, built up their own banks, built up their own economies, and they weren't dependent upon the white man. They weren't dependent upon the white led government. They were burned down. Hmm. They were destroyed. So how is that so much different from now in a sense to where the criminal justice system is used to disproportionately place black and brown and poor individuals uh, within these prison systems for profit? Uh, Our schools, Rahm Emanuel and others have been pushing for the privatization of our schools, charter school industries, which I don't support because they want to divest from public schools, which primarily serve black, brown, and poor individuals. So again, it's just being a, a war being waged, and I think we're seeing the fruit of that inaction and lack of labor uh, in regard to supporting us. And, you know, obviously Ocasio-Cortez, Tim Canova in 2016, a lot of these high-level down-ballot races are kind of getting attention because their themes very much connect with what's going on nationally. Well, when you look at nationally right now, it was amazing to me. You have Nancy Pelosi, in my view, playing theatrics, you know, every other day now is a press conference, Trump's a cover-up, this and that. I don't like Trump, but at the end of the day, she did a press conference today all about Trump. No mention for the Democratic Party's leadership that McDonald's workers were striking all Mm. over the country. No mention of the fight for 15. No mention that uh, it just came out in in New York that text messages show the police officer that shot, or excuse me, choked out Eric Garner was told no big deal by your... (laughs) Uh, by his uh, lieutenant above him, uh, you know, basically no, no big deal. You did it the right way. So basically these core issues that we're talking about, we don't have any leadership for the Democratic Party other than I'd say Bernie, uh, you know, a few, few people. So d- trickling down, if, if, you don't have any is- if you don't have any leadership from uh, the National Party on these local issues, does that create more of a, 
does that hamstring you and harm you? Or does that give you an opportunity? Because some candidates are, don't want to go too hard against the Democratic uh, mm-hmm. machine and don't want to call them out by name. They just want to focus more right. on a positive campaign. Do you feel like you have to take on the machine more or are you going to focus truly on local issues? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I don't know why I thought about this when you were speaking, uh, but my late grandma, Grandma Lil, you know, she told me when I when I started dating and, you know, I had my heart broken and, you know, I've broken hearts in my lifetime as well. She told me, if you truly love someone or care about someone, one of the first things you cannot be afraid to do is to, one, tell the truth and to hold them accountable. Mm. Tell the truth and hold them accountable. Uh, so I believe that the Democratic Party's mantra, you know, since the 60s, when you know blacks transitioned into the Democratic Party with the New Deal, so on and so forth, focusing on Trump, focusing on Russia consistently provides them an opportunity to, one, not tell the truth and two, not hold themselves accountable. And as someone who truly loves the individuals on the ground, loves our community members, and I consider myself a Democrat, I believe it's my responsibility as well as others to hold our party accountable and to speak truth to power. Uh, So while it's harmed overall communities and while it's harmed overall individuals, if I truly love the individuals I'm trying to serve, it's important that I call for accountability. And I think we have to say that the Democratic Party has failed. The Democratic Party has failed to truly empower oppressed classes of people. You know, it's easy again, you know, for the Democratic Party, we talk about Trump, we talk about racism. We can even go to sexism and misogyny. I don't, I just remember it was what, a year or two ago when it came out that, you know, sexism was rampant, you know, within the Democratic Party as a whole, and, you know, they were paying with funds and so on and so forth. But again, let's focus on Trump. Let's not pay attention to what we're doing. So we could go on and on. It's important that we hold ourselves accountable. I look at it as an opportunity because I'm not only talking a revolutionary mindset in regards to what's wrong. I point out what's wrong and then I talk about, okay, what can we do to fix it? You know, our children are ingesting lead. Our children have chronic asthma due to the pollution. That's wrong. I feel the Democratic Party has failed to address this issue. But now let's look at the Green New Deal. You know, we have individuals on the ground that have no zero hospitals to go to uh, that are dying at home because of lack of health care. That's wrong. Democratic Party wants to push for public options and, oh, the ACA and, oh, let's step back from single-payer Medicare for all. No, the solution is single-payer Medicare for all. The solution is drawing a line in the sand and not playing that middle ground centrism and demanding revolution, you know, demanding change and empowerment of all people. Uh, So I truly look at it as an opportunity, and I think I'll end with this, you know, with this question. This is why you've seen, I think, the Republican Party who pushes individualism, who pushes grab yourself up by the bootstraps, because they know it's a disadvantage. Uh, while they call for, you know, the Blexit, you know, black people leave the Democratic Party, so on and so forth, because they sense that there's many individuals that are unhappy with the Democratic Party and how they're being served or not being served. Uh, so we need to truly pay attention to this, uh, get our stuff together, because I'll be quite honest with you, Jordan, when I'm knocking on doors and I encounter a mother or a father who is living in a community where a food desert exists, who may have lost a son, a daughter, or they, or a family member to gun violence, who doesn't know where their, you know, if their job is going to be there tomorrow, they're not making a living wage. Do you think they really want to talk about Russia? Mm. No, no. They don't want to talk about what can we do to empower them so then they can move forward and not have to seek help again, where they can help themselves. Uh, So I think that's what's important to think about. And uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, in a post-Jason Van Dyke world, he was the officer who uh, shot Laquan McDonald 16 times. He's, uh, I think he was charged, uh, convicted of second-degree ma- murder. Um, 
has anything changed uh, as far as the police department? I think I know the answer, but uh, <laughs> obvi- obviously the police union came out against this, which is unbelievable to me. But has there been any attempt at um, reform? I know that when I was there last, they were pushing for AR-15s to walk around with. Uh, what has uh, Jason Van Dyke's uh, conviction uh, done as far as police relations? You know, I think it's interesting. I believe his conviction has just further polarized the issue in a sense of you have, you know, police officers and those who believe, you know, Blue Lives Matter, you know, further galvanizing uh, behind officers like Jason Van Dyke and behind, you know, the blue wall. Uh, you know, we've been having protests. I actually was part of a protest We where we went to the Fraternal Order of Police headquarters and demanded change. Uh, and it's interesting to think about, you know, when I'm talking about police account, again, accountability, we're called, you know, haters of police. We're called, you know, racist somehow and so on and so forth. I don't want to see anyone die. You know, I don't think anybody on my side wants to see anybody die. We want to see people live. And I think true accountability, if you want to be a true police officer protecting and serving, that's why we're pushing for CPAC, uh, you know, a citizens account community accountability, uh, an oversight committee. Uh, you need to build relationships within your community. But I think, again, we're focusing on symptoms all the time. It doesn't matter how much training, you know, Rahm Emanuel was pushing for the 95 million allocation for, you know, a new police academy and so on and so forth. You can have all the training in the world. You can have RoboCop walking the streets, uh, you know, Ed 209. If you don't address the, 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 the root causes of just bigotry and hatred that exists, you know, again, within the society where you have officers serving in communities where they have zero stake in the community, where they look at individuals that they're supposed to be protecting and serving as less than, as less than human, as the adversary. You know, how many officers are we seeing putting up, you know, white supremacist signs and, you know, we're catching them on their social medias, like you say, laughing and joking and, and just basically making light of, you know, police violence. Uh, it's a real issue. And I think we have yet to address that. You know, of course, you know, there's issues on the ground, you know, police brutality, so on and so forth. We haven't even really scratched the surface. I was talking about decriminalizing sex work earlier. We haven't even scratched the surface of how police brutalize individuals with sexual assault and rape. That occurs right along the lines of, you know, shootings, uh, because, again, it's that power dynamic that exists. Uh, so I, I think we're in like an interesting period now. Of course, Jesse Smollett, you know, or I think it's Jesse. I, again, I'm pronounce his name possibly. You know, that occurred. So I think that further created polarization. Uh, but we're fighting and we're not fighting to say, you know, police officers must die. I want all police officers to live, but I want all police officers to also believe in my right to live individuals that look like me, their right to live and come together and really invest in community policing models. Uh, and I don't think we're getting that from police departments. I think they look at it again as an attack on them. Uh, you know, so they're galvanized around essentially supporting corruption. So we're going to continue to fight. Uh, you know, there's wonderful individuals better than me in regards to that area that I'm supporting. And I, you know, uh, will march and stand in solidarity with on a daily basis. And we're going to just continue to fight until we're valued. And uh, how can people find out more? This won't be the first. This definitely won't be the last time we speak. Got a long way to 2020. But how do people find out more about your campaign? I'm, I'm definitely sure you're trying to find volunteers in the area. And obviously, you know, a couple bucks helps, too. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Everything helps. So our website is www.voteanthonyclark.com. That's Clark, C-L-A-R-K. So www.voteanthonyclark.com. You can also check me out on my social media accounts, Anthony B. Clark, again, C-L-A-R-K. And truly, just learn more about the movement. 
you know, it's bigger than me. You know, elections are going to come and go. But if we truly can create a revolutionary movement, that will remain. Uh, so, yes, we need volunteers. We need individuals spreading the message. We need a dollar here, five dollars there, because we're 100 percent grassroots movement. Uh, we're accepting zero corporate PAC money. But it'll all help us take the fight to the establishment and, and take the fight to bring power back to the people. And I think also people in the area uh, should know you're pretty much at everything. I know you're going right now to a reproductive rights uh, event because the attacks right. on abortion. So you're you're in the community. So uh, they could go beyond just watching this. They'll probably see you uh, at many events. No question. No question. Have to be an ally in verb form. You know, we have to be boots to the ground. It's not enough just to post. It's not enough to say something. We have to be ready to get our hands dirty and fight. So I will be going to this event. Uh, we're pushing for the Illinois to pass the RHA Reproductive Health Act. Uh, of course, nationally, we see the attacks that are being going on, the war being waged against women. It's not about babies. In my estimation, they're just using abortion to attack and disempower women. Uh, so we have to recognize, you know, again, the by design the approach. Yeah, come out there. March with me. Fight with me. Uh, let's do it. Cool, man. Take care. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Appreciate it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that last video. Hop on over to statusquo.com where you can sign up for our email list and become a member for as low as five to ten dollars a month. Membership is how we grow. That's statusquo.com/slash/join. And remember, join our email list so we can grow the revolution with you.